daily news and analysis. We keep you informed and inspired. This is World Today. With over 150 countries and 40 international organizations participating in the just-concluded Belt and Road Forum, how has the gathering forged alternatives for a changing world? Welcome to Road Today, the panel discussion with Mika Anna. We come to you from our studio in Beijing with a different perspective. Around 460 outcomes were achieved as the curtain came down on the third Belt and Road Forum for International Cooperation in Beijing. These outcomes encompass a range of international cooperation proposals, multilateral agreements, practical projects, and bilateral agreements. During the momentous event marking the 10th anniversary of the Belt and Road Initiative, Chinese President Xi Jinping also highlighted eight major steps to bring the Belt and Road cooperation to a new stage of a higher quality and a higher level development. He stressed increased efforts in green development, scientific and technological innovation, and supporting an open world economy. As Belt and Road cooperation completes its vibrant first decade, how does the future of this initiative unfold within the eight major steps? How will participating countries together provide alternative choices to the ever-changing world through collaboration? To delve into this and the transformative potential of the BRI in an evolving global landscape, joining us are Mr. Chen Weihua, Chief of China Daily U Bureau and a former Chief Correspondent in Washington, D.C. Chen, great to have you as always. Thank you, Anna, for inviting me. Zun American Research Fellow at the Center for China and Globalization. Hi, Zun. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Anne. It's always a pleasure. Thank you for having me. And Georgia Masset, Policy Officer in European and International Organizations. Thanks for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. A decade definitely offered us a very good opportunity for reflection on the past and strategic planning for the future. So let's delve into this first with a look back at the past decade. 150 countries and 30-plus international organizations have signed cooperative documents under the BRI initiative over the past 10 years. Mr. Chen, what core principles or values inherent in the BRI have led an ever-growing number of nations to embrace this vision? Well, I think uh, it's quite clear in this very chaotic world, countries are facing many common challenges, uh, but there is really a lack. If you look at uh, Asian Development Bank, World Bank, every area, region from Asia, Africa, Latin America, lack of infrastructure connectivity, especially in the developing world, is a big problem. There's a huge gap. So when China launched this BRI, initiative 10 years ago. This is all based on equality, development, and the win-win cooperation. What China called the planning together, building together, benefiting together. I think this is what, you know, appeals to people. They cannot find, uh, there is no equivalent that, that could help uh, their development or the global development. I think uh, President Xi actually stated very well in the speech that uh, we are not engaging ideological confrontation, not geopolitical zero-sum games. It's not about uh, engaging in block politics, you know, economic coercion, uh, unilateral sanction, cutting off the supply chain. And so this is a big contrast. BRI is about open global economy, cooperation, win-win cooperation. So I think that's why it's so appealing. If you look at, just say one more thing, if you look at the FT, Financial Times article, and they say the global south are very frustrated with the, the G7, just simply from the Israeli-Palestine conflict. Uh, but that's just one example. Many of the, the developing the global south are disappointed with the so-called G7 or U.S., Georgia, like Mr. Chen pointed out, in a world where some of the dominant powers are more linked to confrontation and competition, in your opinion, what makes the BRI so attractive and anticipated on the global stage today? 
Well, I completely agree. And it is important to notice how in just 10 years, more than 150 countries have signed uh, either cooperative documents or memorandum of understanding. And this is something we have to take into consideration. And it is it, there are very important numbers. So I think that the core principle or values that appeal to countries are different. Uh, but at the same time, there are some shared values and shared infrastructure pl- projects and developments that, as we just mentioned, the G- Global South is takes as an opportunity and has been lived as an opportunity during these 10 years in order to spur economic growth and, well, address the lack of, of infrastructure. So I think that this infrastructure development is what appeals the most. But not only because, uh, as we mentioned, the win-win cooperation, the people-to-people exchange. So I think that uh, together with infrastructure uh, development, connectivity and integration, it's what makes the Belt and Road Initiative really appealing to these countries. Yes, I think the idea and opportunity to develop is attracting increasing number of states. Exactly. Zun, Pakistan as a country deeply involved in the BRI and is the location of the BRI's flagship project, the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor, right? From what you have observed in the field, what made this project so appealing? Firstly, let's address, you know, the Pakistan, the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor is definitely the flagship project of the Belt and Road Initiative. It is a project that was and continues to be transformative for Pakistan's development. So this is the first thing, you know, for us to recognize that, like Mr. Chen said, there is a dearth of infrastructure in the global south. There was a desperate demand for development and interest by uh, traditional institutions who should have uh, taken a more keen interest in, you know, development of the global south in particular, and were not. So this was a big gap that China decided to fill, and this is warmly welcomed by the global south. You look at the number of countries that are keen to continue the cooperation and the success of the summit that I was lucky to attend is definitely, you know, a proof of that. Now coming to the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor, you know, in 2015, when the first phase was announced, it was essentially a $46 billion proposed investment package in transport infrastructure, energy infrastructure, special economic zones, the port of Gwadar. These are investments that Pakistan was needed for many years. And when it was announced, I can tell you April 2015, it was a celebration in Pakistan. It was like a breath of fresh air in an economy that needed a boost. Our young people needed jobs. We, need, we needed practical investment in the country. And eight years on from that first announcement, you know, we see that CPEC, just like the Belt and Road Initiative, has evolved towards, you know, how can this investment infrastructure be utilized for people? Socioeconomic is important. We are talking about uh, poverty alleviation, education cooperation, technical and vocational education. Think tanks are working together. I mean, since that first investment announcement, we have seen successful projects and a lot of impact on people. So I'm just giving a, an example. Hundreds of thousands of new jobs you know, are directly or indirectly linked with CPEC projects. And even you know, today, Whenever we talk about Pakistan's domestic development, whenever we talk about, you know, uh, solutions that will work, we are, uh, CPEC is central to that conversation. So this is something, you know, very important for listeners to understand that when we talk about the global south, you know, when we talk about developing countries and the fact that they have been left behind, they have been for many decades, you know, been told to follow development models that simply didn't work. With China's success and with China's successful investments in these countries, we see, like Pakistan, many other countries seeing a path forward. Indeed, like Chinese President Xi Jinping emphasized during his meeting with world leaders this week, that the achievements of BRI cooperation are earned by governments, enterprises, and the people of all participating countries. Zun, speaking of that, can you share some specific examples of how BRI have positively influenced the participating countries socially? 
One of the most significant examples that I'll give one which is very close to me personally as well because you know the gap between you know women's participation in the workforce and the opportunities to women in China versus Pakistan is very big and we have seen that you know in the CPEC projects actually some women made big headlines in the country that they were being employed they were economically empowered one story back in 2016 17 that went viral that this woman who had previously she had no means to earn a living for her family was then a truck driver she was very confident she was making excellent money for her family and this was a very popular story in pakistan that you know the cpec projects are giving opportunities in a way that really we couldn't have imagined it's a positive it's taken very positively by society and also i'll give another example in gwadar you know the gwadar port is a project that pakistan has been trying to develop for decades and it wasn't working you know either we didn't have the right investors or we just didn't that there wasn't a keen interest ever since the chinese investment has come in there is a positive outlook on the city you know now people in gwadar since i was lucky to visit back in 2017 twice and in 2019 you talk to the local people they see they are optimistic they see that you know for decades we've been wanting something but since the chinese investment you actually see on ground changes that are positive but on top of that what's also happening in gwadar this is the socio economic side one of the best schools in balochistan now is one that the chinese company and the locals together started which is called the fakir colony school it was initiated because the dropout rate for young girls in that community was very high because the closest school was a bit far and now you know the girls in that city are able to get top tier education because of this project and it is it is definitely one that in pakistan is seen very well the chinese company the employees have taken interest in you know building better opportunities for the community we also see many initiatives for women you know like in china i've had the opportunity to go to many places where they have special centers some women they have a certain cultural talent right but they may not have uh, the opportunity to find the resources to to sell those products so the chinese have actually the chinese company copc has opened different centers for women to be able to to be employed to be trained and to be able to earn a living there are also agricultural projects in different parts of the country gwadar was pretty barren land and now you have multiple you know crops and different kinds of plants vegetables fruits growing over there again that hadn't happened such examples you know are found all across pakistan and obviously we have the major mega projects which are a cleaner energy oriented better transportation we have public transport in major cities of pakistan like karachi lahore that did not exist pre cpec we didn't have proper public transport in mega cities with over 10 12 million people and because of cpec we do that's one aspect but then you also see a lot of small projects that are based on improving the quality of life of the community surrounding Yes, I think these small and heartwarming stories, comparing to the big numbers, are the best part of the ten years of BRI cooperation. As these projects are really making more contributions to local societies and truly represent the core value of the BRI connectivity and common prosperity. Mr. Chen, have you ever visited any BRI projects? Are there any stories that you would like to share with our audiences? Yeah, definitely. Over the last ten years, I visited many. Actually, I also visited the one in Africa, Ethiopia, and、uh, the Chinese help、uh, build the railway to from Addis Ababa to Djibouti, the light rail, and actually also the Huawei was building all the probably the entire telecommunication network at the time. I remember an Ethiopia employee told me how proud because. He was making such a very very good pay by local standards, the Huawei. So he felt、uh, so proud when going home every day. I mean, his family, everyone,、uh, I mean, respect him so much more. I mean, I also cover the China Europe、uh, freight rail called the China Europe Railway Express, and、uh, you know,、uh, from Duisburg in Germany, which is the hub of this uh, uh, freight line. And also, I went to. 
Tyrus, uh, the port in Greece near Athens.、Uh, it's a very successful story because if you look at the ranking of the port, I don't remember the exact number. It's like jumped like by ten, twenty places、uh, in the world, and it's growing、uh, even further. All these projects、uh, create jobs in terms of Ethiopian project. I mean, women's employment,、uh, as、uh, Zoom mentioned. I also visit bridge in Croatia. I mean. The EU funding, actually, the Chinese have built the、uh, Belgrade-Budapest railway. I was、uh, there、uh, six months ago. They marked this one-year anniversary of、uh, Belgrade to Novi Sad.、Uh, I talked to people, local people.、Uh, the trip used to take so long; they could take a nap. Now I mean, you are there in forty minutes. So these are the change. I mean, because China learned from the forty-plus years of reform opening up. Infrastructure is vital to China's economic takeoff or miracle. So, a lot of developing countries, especially, could、uh, you know learn from that kind of experience. And because you mentioned Europe, Europe also、uh, even has a lot of.、Uh, Developed country, it's also suffering from a sort of a poor infrastructure in many areas. I mean, that's relatively speaking. Roads are old, old infrastructure not functioning like the 21st century standards. Thanks for sharing your rich experiences, Georgia. What's your take? Do you notice the some stories that exemplify the positive social advancements in countries participating in the BRI? Yes, absolutely. Well, I wanted to give the example of Greece as well, with the investments in the port of Piraeus under the Belt and Road Initiative. This has not only created, well, economically an economical boost, but it has really helped tourism in Greece. And how tourism, especially Chinese tourism in、uh, Greece, has skyrocketed, and especially by cruise ship, not only in Greece but、uh, giving、uh, access to the rest. Of Europe also, and another example that I was lucky enough to live when I was、uh, in Tunisia.、Uh, more academically speaking, under the Belt and Road Initiative, one Confucius Institute that teaches、uh, Chinese language culture、uh, has been opened in order to give students the opportunity to learn Chinese and also win scholarships in order to travel to China. And well, have a better and a more international、uh, learning experience. And I think, and I saw how people were looking up、uh, students, especially, but not also also、uh, teachers were looking up to these opportunities as something that could change people's life and people's future. It's something that really made me feel how the Belt and Road Initiative and the people-to-people exchange、uh, in a country that、uh, recently signed the Memorandum of Understanding really is working. How it's changing and it has to, the power to change people's lives,、uh, academically speaking, in this case, but not also. Yeah, given what has been said, the BRI has received support from many countries in the developing countries and less developed countries as well. Mr. Chen, mentioning of the benefits these countries experienced, how has this BRI cooperation influenced their development strategies? Yeah, I, yeah, I think BRI is really sort of the crystallization of China's.、Uh, Decades of economic development. I mean, it's a miracle. Everybody knows. I mean, infrastructure. I recall when I first became a reporter in Shanghai, my home city. You know, Shanghai was desperate to attract FDI, foreign direct investment. You know, multinationals came, but the problem, the bottlenecks, I would say, is electricity outage, bad roads. And the port is a、uh, very limited capacity. There was a、uh, really、uh, bridges or tunnels across the Huangpu River, which、uh, bisected the city into two parts. I mean, everybody heard the Pudong now.、Uh, every、mm. in the old days, Shanghai people say we would rather prefer a bed in Puxi instead of a house apartment in the Pudong because it's so difficult to get there. The reason I said this is.、Uh, China learned. I mean, from the, its experience, if you want to get rich, you have to first build roads. So infrastructure is vital, and it also could、uh, propel the whole economic development, like、uh, steel, cement,、uh, other、uh, economic development. That's why, as China strategy, even in the difficult time, some governments use stimulus plan. China has. Always focused on the building infrastructure, not just for our generation. Because if you build a road or bridge, 
it's not just for 10 years, 20 years. It could last for 50 years or maybe even 100 years or longer. So that means your country, your economy is going to have a big potential. I think the global south, which faced, many of them faced the same challenges China had in the 19, maybe 70s, 80s. Uh, so now I think they learned such a strategy would also benefit, as we mentioned, this is exactly what they want. I remember 2014, I was in Addis Ababa, it takes uh, a long, long ride to just get 10 kilometers. You know, the road was not that great. I hope it's much better now because I wrote a lot of construction projects uh, in the past few years. So I think uh, these uh, developing countries in global south learned from China's uh, development strategy and uh, uh, developing their own, improve more from China's. I think China had a good experience, but China has some hard lessons too. So I think they could actually make an even better strategy in my view. I think that's a very interesting concept you brought up, building road before getting rich, which often associated with China's rapid economic development involves investing in infrastructures such as roads, railways, and ports to facilitate economic growth. This approach indeed worked very well in China, but how has it been adapted to other countries? Zun, any thoughts on this? In what ways, in your opinion, has this collaboration shaped the development approaches in your country, in Pakistan? You know, the fact, the infrastructure that we needed in Pakistan. So the context, you know, of 2015 being a very important year when the projects were announced is because Pakistan had gone through some security and economic challenges. We called it the economic crisis. We had load shedding, power outages of 12 to 14 hours in major cities. We were de-industrializing in this period. It was definitely a very tough situation. And of course, you know, at that point, we don't say that, okay, we need to just build this infrastructure and not focus on education and health. But that lack of infrastructure, especially when you have such a young population, people aren't able to find jobs. Uh, We are not attracting any investment. Instead, the investment existing was relocating. You know, that's a very challenging situation for a country. So when the first phase of infrastructure projects was announced, it wasn't that, oh, you know, China somehow just came to Pakistan and said, we want to build these energy and transportation infrastructure projects and the port of Gwadar and special economic zones. Actually, Pakistan had most of these projects already planned and was trying to attract investment, but we were not able to because we were not seen as a viable destination. And a lot of times with, you know, uh, especially Western financial institutions and the the kind of strings attached were not suitable for Pakistan at that time. So the first thing, you know, when you say do developing countries see eye to eye with China when they think about infrastructure, energy, transportation, etc. Absolutely, they do. If you look at bilateral agreements, whether it's Pakistan, China, whether it's, you know, China and some Central Asian countries, African uh, countries, the final projects that are part of the Belt and Road Initiative, especially in the first phase of infrastructure, were always mutually determined. They were more often, you know, part of the domestic plan that the country had. At that time, Pakistan had a vision 2025 which we needed to attract investment for. And then, you know, between Pakistan and China, it was Pakistan's Planning and Development Commission and the Chinese NDRC that finalized the first announced projects, right? So developing countries recognize the importance of infrastructure. They recognize the importance of creating opportunities for their people. And they also recognize that when we move towards the next phase, it's not just that, you know, we were ever building roads, ports, etc., for the sake of building infrastructure, but now we need to also equip our people with the right skill sets to be able to utilize that infrastructure. And here, you know, we had uh, Georgina make a very important point on education. So one of the core pillars of the Belt and Road Initiative for years now has been the number of Chinese government scholarships to students from various countries, this is also helping develop the skills. These scholarships are not only changing individual lives, they're also creating 
new skill sets in countries, developing countries that are much needed as we transition towards the next phases of utilization of infrastructure. So yes, there is an understanding. Of course, China's own success has also helped more developing countries recognize the important impact that infrastructure can have. We cannot just talk about SDGs and poverty alleviation without injecting the economy with with the right uh, prerequisites, which is, of course, you know, the ability to attract basic job opportunities and to move things forward. Thanks to all of our panelists. We'll have a short break. Coming back, we'll continue our discussion. This is World Today. Stay with us. Welcome back to World Today with Mika Anna, and I'm joined by Chen Weihua, Chief of China Daily You Bureau and a former Chief Correspondent in Washington, D.C., Zuna Madkan, Research Fellow at the Center for China and Globalization, and Georgia Masset, Policy Officer in European and International Organizations. Let's continue our discussion. We have seen over the past decade, the BRI participating countries have created a lot of impossibilities together. From 2013, which is the year the BRI was first initiated, to last year, 2022, the accumulated trade volume among all the participating countries surpassed 19 trillion U.S. dollar, which is about five times of Germany's annual GDP, with a growth rate of around 5%. Now, nations are meeting at the turn of this decade to discuss the future. During the keynote speech at the opening ceremony of the forum, Chinese President Xi Jinping has announced eight major steps to support high-quality Belt and Road cooperation, including green development, scientific technological innovation, and supporting open world economy. Mr. Chen, what's your major takeaway from these eight steps? Well, I'm extremely encouraged by Xi's uh, announcement of this eight step. I think uh, it takes BI just to a new level. I mean, 21st century uh, standards, definitely. And uh, because all these you just mentioned, the green development, technology, innovation, open global economy is exactly what country and the whole world need. Even, you know, where I'm based in the EU, they are talking about this the developing world. I, mean, I think these new steps are addressing our common concern. If we just recall China is the most ambitious in investing, developing uh, renewable energy, electric car, for example, and uh, scientific innovation, China inputting R&D and just been skyrocketing in the last decade. So open global economy, I think this is putting the sharp contrast in sort of the U.S. leaders uh, rattling about uh, us versus them. It's always trying to divide the world into different blocks. China is all about cooperation, while these countries and the G7s talk about confrontation, block uh, politics. If you listen to U.S. president, it's so excluding others, you know, kick them out. It's like zero-sum uh, mindset. So I think all these eight steps are uh, exactly put in contrast uh, what uh, the developed uh, countries who actually pretend themselves to be the international community, even they are just a tiny fraction of the global population. So I'm really thrilled, actually. I think uh, this uh, is the right way going forward to benefit the humanity. Zun, you were there at the opening ceremony, right? How do you look at the global implication of these steps? Yes, I was there at the opening ceremony. You know, I actually noted the eight steps down as President Xi was stating them. It was, for me personally, I think, I think many people in the global south, developing countries, deeply resonate with the kind of messaging that has come out of China over the past years, especially the Belt and Road Initiative, like Mr. Chen just mentioned. You know, the fact that we are not inferior in any way. Our countries, our ancestors, they didn't fight against colonialism and they were not, you know, fighting against domination. 
to end up in the lap of like imperialism, right? So when China, you know, steps up and, and treats countries, regardless of how big or small they are, for example, you know, Chinese diplomats and Chinese leaders giving the same respect, regard and importance to an island nation versus a country with a big population, that is the kind of respect and regard that countries in the global south have wanted, have desired, that the messaging from Xi Jinping and the whole, the concept around the Belt and Road Initiative, including the Global Development Initiative and the Civilizations Initiative and the Security Initiative, all of this is in sync with the Bandong spirit, the Bandong movement, which was for, you know, regaining the common spirit, a spirit of solidarity and not having to pick sides that developing countries had initiated decades ago. So the way I see it, you know, after President Xi's address, which was obviously about unity, which was about that the Belt and Road Initiative and China's vision is not in any way divisive. In fact, when other countries develop, we should support that. We should promote it because there is synergy in that. This is not just a vague concept. This is a reality. We see that regions prosper and perish together. We see that regions that have worked together, you know, open trade and cooperated and exchanged resources, they have collectively become better off. And regions where there is a lack of interconnectedness, those are relatively, you know, not able to seek or gain the opportunities that they could have. People-centric development is another very important concept that's constantly emphasized by President Xi under the Belt and Road spirit, which is that, you know, in the end, the ultimate mandate of any government is to improve lives of people. If you look at this SDGs, the Sustainable Development Goals, which is the common consensus of all countries, it is about improving the circumstances for ordinary people. And the Belt and Road Initiative is all about that, is all about seeking opportunities. So what is the reason to divide? Create alliances, treat others who you think, you know, who some countries think don't fit into their uh, worldview as undesirable uh, and, you know, unilateral sanction. In the end, ordinary people suffer. So long story short, I also want to mention that, you know, in these eight aspects and that President Xi mentioned, one was also multilateralism. And this is a very important trend that we are seeing right now. If we want to, you know, think about a shared community, a shared global community because of a shared future, a very important step is to create regional synergy. And we saw that in the last few years, you know, China, Central Asia, China, South Asia, China, Africa, China, ASEAN, all of these, China, Latin America, all of these mechanisms are a very important step towards creating synergized plans within regions. And then we can go a step forward and think about, you know, broader development projects. So multilateralism, thinking of open engagement, realizing that in the end, you know, what all people have in common is the fact that they want a better future for themselves, for their families, and so on. This is a common denominator. Let's work towards policies, perspectives that unite us, that accept our diversity. In fact, even celebrate it. Let's have more civilizational dialogue. Let's not try to convert one another. We don't need uniformity. We need unity. And I'll also lastly add that for China, you know, there is thousands of years of history, millennia of, you know, understanding how civilizations have prospered through open-mindedness, interconnectivity, the ability to learn from each other, rather than thinking, you know, their perspective is the universal one. This is a very big factor, connects deeply with the global South. China understands the challenges developing countries face. China has recently been through many of those challenges, and China is creating opportunities. This is also something Mr. Chen earlier mentioned, that there were challenges in China's own development, for example, the environmental challenges, Today, China's investment in research and improvement of, you know, greener technology, technological, you know, advancement is helping developing countries have access to technologies that they did not have years ago. So these are very important developments. And you wouldn't see a developing country say, OK, we will say no to this project. They see China and the Belt and Road as an opportunity. And this mm. is the fact that, that the G7 countries cannot change. 
I think you made a very good point that every country has the right to realize its own dreams and the right to development. Georgia, what's your take on the eight major steps? Because promoting green development is also a significant step. How do you foresee the BRI contributing to global environmental sustainability, especially in areas such as renewable energy, green infrastructure, and eco-friendly transportation, which many European countries have been focused. Uh, well, I think this is a very important point, as uh, the Belt and Road Initiative, being the project of the century and the most expensive project uh, at the moment, has the responsibility, in one sense, to promote green development, which is already doing. In there are many factors. China, in the light of the Belt and Road Initiative, is already heavily investing. In renewable energy sources, I have, of course, the examples of more Italy and、uh, Tunisia. So, especially Tunisia, solar, wind, hydroelectric power. So, heavily investing in green infrastructure.、Uh, well, help participants in the country、uh, develop projects and have a very minimal environmental impact. It is important to say how many of these developing countries don't have a responsibility. For the environmental challenge we are faced with right now, but are suffering the consequences of it. So it is very important to have these、uh, green building practices, a stress in eco-friendly、uh, transportation. Mr. Chen, what's your take? Because Western media have focused their attacks on the BRI for years, accusing it of being harmful to the environment. How do you look at such attack? How do you view the BRI's dedication to sustainable development and inclusive progress, specifically in areas like renewable energy, green infrastructure, and etc.? I think、uh, the Western smear campaign, whether from the United States or Europe, is just、uh, nonsense. According to multiple academic from John Hopkins University in Washington, actually the Brookings Institution in Washington, lately sad news: this economist David Dollar just passed away. He actually always、uh, criticized this Western politician who said, "Oh, the BI is a death trap. All these because this is、uh, basically treating like old African country as a developing country. They believe they have no idea how to govern themselves. So this is total nonsense, according to David Dollar, others, and、uh, you know, Dabler at、uh, John Hopkins. So there was a、uh, multiple studies, I think,、uh, to prove that China actually offered a concession." Loans, a lot of favorable, I mean, policies to help developing countries. In terms of、uh, like renewable, yeah, China is a manufacturing powerhouse, but China now has also grown into a technology. Powerhouse. I mean, just look at the patents in the world every year. The scientific papers published, including oh no, the Tiangong China's International Space Station. We have invited the developing country to join. In contrasting to the U.S., which actually excluded China from space cooperations. So. I think China is the global leader. I mean, if you cite the statistics, China is number one in renewable. Whether you're talking about the wind power, solar, and China is also, you know, building a lot of nuclear power stations too. And、uh, electric car, I mentioned that the batteries. I mean, it's、uh, vital for electric、uh, vehicles. I mean, I attended the in Munich and Germany just a month ago. The they call the IAA Mobility Show. So. The Chinese EV electric vehicle companies are the real stars. So it's a surprise, right? If you think you are coming to Germany, are you crazy? You don't imagine a Chinese company would come here to show automobile, but that's、uh, the new reality. Chinese company. Are leading the world in EVs, so I think all these could help a developing country. As a country are small and don't have the capacity for some G7 country, they almost believe that certain country don't deserve good infrastructure because in their democracy versus autocracy, only certain country deserve good infrastructure. I said no. All people in this world, regardless of which country they are, they deserve good infrastructure. So I think China could help the inclusive BRI. China certainly could play the. 
big role, I mean, in renewable or clean energy, lastly, not just uh, for the global south, for the whole world. I think uh, in Europe, I mean, the, all the solar panels are basically from China. I mean, China is helping the EU in green transition. So China play a big part in helping the world in this green transition. Soon, China has pledged to stop building new coal energy plants overseas, including a lot of projects with Pakistan. How do you look at this? How's BRI supporting green transformation in your country? Hmm. You know, this is such an interesting point. Uh, back in 2015, I remember the major energy projects were not renewable. You know, there was a perception that people, you know, investors don't see renewable as viable investment. However, in 2016, 17, 18, there were multiple, obviously, a lot of investment going in renewables and green energy within China, which made these technology more increasingly viable year after year. These meetings, these conferences, experts, economists were being invited from Pakistan and other developing countries by the Chinese to help them, you know, understand the advantages of this transition. You know, there wasn't a demand in Pakistan of greener renewable energy in 2015, the way there was after 2017 and 18, after a lot of Chinese effort as well on helping understand that now we are at a stage technology that it is becoming increasingly viable and these are the benefits of it. So it's not that China responded to an existing demand, which existed, let's say, when the first phase of the projects were announced. But China actually helped create more demand by creating more confidence, by helping developing countries have more confidence in renewables. And today you see that most of you know the newer energy projects in Pakistan are renewable. We have, we have the power plant in Sahival as well, which has a net zero carbon emission. And we have a big solar power park which is one of the biggest in Asia because of Chinese investment. And increasingly, you know, there's opportunity for people in Pakistan to have their own private solar panels. Again, they are all these companies that are able to find that a resource for Pakistani households are working with Chinese partners. Chinese solar panels are more efficient. They are uh, better priced, they are more reasonable, they're better accessible. And this is, as also Mr. Chen mentioned, you know, in Europe also, you see that the solar panels being used are from China. So I would firstly say that the Belt and Road Cooperation, because it is responsive, and it is also responding to changing circumstances, those changing circumstances include the increasing viability of greener energy sources, a, a transition towards development and opportunity creation and infrastructure that is less harmful for the environment. China is helping developing countries, including Pakistan, choose projects that are better for the environment. And this is something, you know, that's happening across continents right now. I was also part uh, for the Belt and Road Summit. I was part of a group of people from different countries. We were taken to different cities and villages over the last week of China. We were all we are all recipients of uh, response letters from President Xi. So we were taken to places where he has worked. And we were, we were shown different aspects of China's development, including poverty alleviation, including agricultural advancement, including also the biggest in the world, you know, battery making company. And I can tell you that, you know, in our delegation, we had people from Europe, we had people from parts of Asia, Africa, you name it. And everyone was just amazed and looking at, you know, how can we have this technology in our country? How can we expedite the technology transfer? How can we benefit from this? And this is what China's development is about. It really inspires experts, professionals, you know, people who visit here that how can we cooperate with China to make these advancements, you know, possible for our people back home? They don't sit and say like, you know, some G7 countries say, oh, debt trap. And again, you know, that whole propaganda is, is again, assuming that developing countries are just not capable of making decisions that are good for them. We know green transformation also requires more scientific and technological upgrading. This is also highlighted as a step forward in President Xi Jinping's speech. Georgia, how do you look at this? How can the BRI foster collaboration in green development and encouraging scientific and technological exchanges among participating countries? 
I completely agree with uh, what has been said, and I found it extremely interesting how uh, how Zun mentioned how cross border collaboration are extremely important in every context, actually, of the Belt and Road Initiative, and especially uh, from a scientific approach. So this uh, exchange of knowledge between countries and China, I think can be a way of becoming more uh, dependent and having less reliance on Western markets and of some restrictions that have been put into place. So this is why I think that um, an emphasis on uh, scientific and technological development can help uh, reduce countries to have a, uh, a more dependence and this is why one of the reasons why I found extremely interesting this uh, exchange of information in order to become more independent and, well, just disengaging from the the past uh, markets and restrictions that could, can be put into place towards China. Georgia, earlier we mentioned about European countries participating in BRI projects. Many of the Eastern European countries already signed the BRI cooperation documents, while the China-Europe freight train project under the BRI established direct rail connections between China and 25 European countries, including Hamburg, Rotterdam, London, and many more. How do you look at this connections between China and Europe under the BRI, and uh, are there any differences in the attitudes of European countries, business and political circles towards this initiative? Yes, absolutely. This is a very interesting question from a European perspective. I think that towards the BRI, uh, European countries have very different takes on this. I personally divide uh, European countries in three main blocks. So European countries that have firstly a very supported uh, attitude towards the Belt and Road Initiative, as you mentioned, mainly uh, Eastern European countries that have seen uh, the opportunity of economic growth and not only uh, under the Belt and Road Initiative. I've mentioned uh, earlier the example of Greece, but, but, not, also, but not only. Uh, some other countries, uh, I would put uh, Italy, my home country, uh, in it, are um, are actually engaging into the BRI and have signed, for example, a memorandum of understanding. But at the same time, they are more dubious and they are trying to balance uh, relationships with China and the BRI, but also trying to respect uh, European standards and uh, some regulations that have been put into place. And finally, I would uh, put other countries, mainly from the Western side of uh, Europe, that have a more skeptical approach toward the Belt and Road Initiative. And I think that uh, this is one of the reasons why some countries in Europe are not actually actively engaging uh, in the Belt and Road Initiative or are thinking about uh, well, not ratify the memorandum of, of understanding. It's because of this skeptical approach by other European countries. So I think that Europe is right now uh, divided and it will be uh, for a long time towards the Belt and Road Initiative. Mr. Chen, earlier you also shared some of your perceptions over the cooperation projects initiated by the BRI in Europe. How do you look at the different stance between European governments, some of the European governments and its business circles. Yeah, I agree with uh, Georgia. I think it varies, I would say, from country to country. If you check the tweets by Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban, who is in Beijing, participating in the BRI forum, and his uh, spokesman basically tweeted a lot of positive messages because uh, Hungary also signed a lot of agreements during the foreign days in Beijing. And uh, you have uh, Serbian President Alexander Vucic uh, also there, you know, signing new agreement uh, with, I think, uh, Changchun, some railway and carriage uh, manufacturing company. I could go on and on, but uh, even, you know, some country which were not uh, really highlighted, like uh, Belgium, where I am based. If you go to the port of Antwerp, the Bruges, there was a Chinese company, Costco, the ocean shipping company, who has invested in the port terminal. You mentioned Germany, the Hamburg, uh, in Rotterdam too, I mean, the Netherlands. So the business leaders, they are very much aware, like we talked earlier about uh, the peer in Greece. Uh, if you, you're having Chinese participation, 
would uh, bring prosperity to the local port. <laughs> the reason is very simple. China is now the largest trading nation in the world. And uh, if you look at the top uh, container ports in the world, the top 10, half of them are in China, more than half probably now. So the business leaders are very, very pragmatic compared with some of the politicians who like to make a show to politicize the geopolitical size of the infrastructure, but fear-mongering about the so-called national security. <laughs> I, I think that's nonsense. Let's say the German Siemens company and the multinational has a huge stake investment in China's critical infrastructure, and China welcomes them, never fear-mongered about Siemens being a threat. Mr. Chen, as a former chief correspondent in Washington, D.C., how about the United States? Back in 2015, China and the U.S. entered into agreement to conduct feasibility studies on jointly building a high-speed rail between Nevada and California. According to the original plan, it should have been completed. But unfortunately, due to some political struggles in the U.S., the project is suspended. But still, there are a lot of U.S. companies have participated. The BRI projects in many participating countries worldwide. One good example is the General Electric, which has produced generators to one of the largest hydroelectric BRI projects in Pakistan. What do you think of the view of the BRI by the American political and business circles? Yeah, I think it's a very divided, uh, generally speaking, I would say. The business leaders are more pragmatic because uh, they cannot uh, talk nonsense, right? Because they are responsible for the shareholders. I think a BRI provides a great opportunity for everyone, including Western companies, especially. They have many of the multinational drawing technology, you know, in the global marketplace. And the BRI uh, provides them with lots of opportunity. You know, I mentioned the German business leaders, some of them talk to like the Bosch. They are very enthusiastic. They say, you know, because the rhetoric is decoupling deals. They say, we're stepping, increasing our presence in China, increasing our investment. Uh, you don't hear that from some politicians, right? And uh, as you mentioned, uh, it will be a great opportunity, not just for GE, I mean, for Westinghouse, for many of the U.S. companies, if they tap into BI opportunities. But the politics, if you go to Washington, the toxic Washington, they like living another world. Yeah, that's a very divided Washington, divided the politician and the business leaders. Thanks, Mr. Chen, and thanks to all of our panelists for your enlightening perspectives and your time with us. That were Mr. Chen Weihua, Chief of China Daily U Bureau and a former Chief Correspondent in Washington, D.C. Zunna Madakan, Research Fellow at the Center for China and Globalization. And Georgia Massad, Policy Officer in European and International Organizations. If you want to hear this episode again or to catch up on previous episodes, you can download our podcast by searching Road Today. That's all the time for this edition of Road Today with Mika Anna. Thank you so much for joining us and until next time.